0: Welcome, Travelers Blueprint community. I'm Elliot Chivley and here with me in perpetuity is the reliable Bob DeMena. Thank you.
1: All right, so before we get into the podcast, I just want to run through our typical spiel. So if you're looking for travel gear, keep in mind that Elliot and I have hand-selected some of the gear that we enjoy using ourselves. You can go to our website, purchase it through an Amazon link, and a small percentage of that sale will come back to us and de- directly support The podcast so if you do purchase anything through the links we really greatly appreciate it and these are not these are not just random items we either use them we own them we can vouch for everything on there and and, uh, so check it out yeah bob actually
0: got me for my birthday a q k bottle is it q or k i think it's q q i think it's q q u e bottle yeah, and they're collapsible. Mm-hmm. They're eco friendly. You can machine wash them. You can put hot stuff in them. You can put cold stuff in them. They're great. I bought one for my sister.
1: Uh, I have one. It's not the Q bottle, but it's very similar. The Kodo Paxi bag that's on there. It's a little pricey, depending on where you where you budget for bags. But oh my, this it's by far the best backpack I've ever owned. Uh, such a great bag. But yeah. so check that stuff out if you're interested. And like I said, it all any any sort of sale, very small percentage helps our podcast, and and we really appreciate it. So. All right. Before, before Elliot breaks down our guest, uh, last week's trivia question, it was a podcast with Kirsty and Christine. And the question was, what odd foods did Kirsty and Christine eat for breakfast while in the Philippines? The answer was lizard. They said, you know, it was chopped up and, and given to them. And it was a really an incredible dish that they both enjoyed. If you answered but that question.
0: If, if the head wasn't there, they would have eaten all of it. Right, 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 right. So if you answered
1: Lizard, um, either through email or a direct message, we'll reach out to you. We'll send you a Traveler's Blueprint sticker. We'll mention you in our, mention you in our IG stories. And, uh, and, and thank you for participating. Elliot, who's, who's on the podcast today?
0: So our guest today is good friends with Eric Weinmayer. They actually consider themselves like brothers. And you may remember Eric from one of our earlier episodes where he talked about his experience being blind and hiking Everest and also kayaking Grand Canyon. So our guest is a guide, a mountaineer, a rock climber, adventurer, and an emergency medicine professional. Today, he talks about his experience in high stress situations, what travel means to him, what he's currently doing, and talks a little bit about his relationship with Eric. So in addition to our guest, we also have a special celebrity guest joining us to ask some specific medical questions. And that guest is Amanda Shibley, my wife. And now without further introduction, our guest today is Jeff Evans. Welcome to The Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Jeff, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint Podcast.
2: Thanks, everybody. Good to be here with you all on a beautiful Sunday morning. Yes. So Bob and I listened to your interview
0: on Joe Rogan a few years ago. and we Don't hold that against me. We <laughs> won't. We won't. And we actually had spoken with Eric Weinmayer last, last year around this time and talked to him about his experience hiking Everest with you and then doing Grand Canyon and all of the other stuff with no barriers and just kind of his adventures and overcoming his blindness and adversity. And with your podcast with Joe, you talk a lot about your guiding and your experience as a medical professional in these extreme conditions. So we'd like to focus on the medical part of it and you being a guide on Everest and in other extreme conditions. Mm Okay. Okay.
2: Yeah. Do we have, how many hours do we have? Cause it's a bit, that's a, that's a lot. It's a lot it, but, um, yeah, it's,
0: We've got no time limit.
2: Yeah. You know, this is my, uh, this is obviously the, the backbone of who I, who I am professionally. And then like what happens with all of us, you know, our professional lives and our, and our, and our personal lives get intertwined and, and, and uh, it's been so instrumental on who I, who I am as a, as a husband and as a, as a father, as a son, and, and how I interact with people, these experiences that I've had with really remarkable individuals, Eric being obviously the kind of the cornerstone of, of a lot that I've done, um, just simply because we spent so much time together, um, you know, had the best and worst moments of our lives together. Um, and then, you know, subsequently, medically, uh, you know, the medicine has taken me to, some really remote places uh, to do some, I'd say, fairly uh, intense uh, things uh, and pursuits, and it's connected me with once again a lot of really remarkable people, and um, and as a result, all those all those uh, all those events have really shaped me and and how I perceive the world, how I, my, my optic has changed completely from my relationship with Eric, uh, and how I see the rest of the world. Uh, in a particular way Uh, you know he by being with him it it creates a dynamic where I don't really I'm not uh, I'm not fixated on my own um, fatigue or my own uh, mental status or uh, you know I, I change my landscape relative to him and his needs and as a result I think that's a gift uh, because it's really provided me the opportunity to, to go further than I ever could have. Uh, because I'm I'm doing my best to to really to really consider the things, the assaults that are going to hurt him, the, the variables that are going to that are going to knock him down, that are that are you know going to impact his his journey. And when I do that, I mean it it takes away what I think is a is a pretty uh, is a is a pretty um, Large impediment, which is our ego, Mm -hmm. you know, um, because our ego tends to insulate us from things and tell us it's okay um, when it's not, or tell us it's not okay when it is, um, in in an effort to try to insulate us and and protect us. And when you when you look for ways to to be with someone else, elevate someone else, whether it's your spouse, your partner, your 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 children, uh, your 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 peers. Uh, this really fascinating thing happens, and it's the same dynamic as I've gotten from Eric over the years. And, and then working in medicine uh, has also um, given me that opportunity uh, to, I think, think of other people first. And 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 this I call it now uh, the the, uh, the the dissolution of the ego, um, <laughs> simply from simply from um, training your training your optic in a different way.
0: Yeah. You weren't always in medicine, and from your bio and your website, it sounds like you took a little bit of time to find your profession. And early on, you were just kind of doing some stuff, found Eric, rock climbing, and then that's kind of how you progressed. So what brought you to medicine?
2: Well, you got to back way up uh, to, to answer that. Um, when I was a kid, uh, there was a show on called Emergency. Uh, and it was, it was a, uh, you know, once a week show uh, and it followed these L A P L A LA fire department paramedics and they, um, you know, they did it all, man. They got cats out of trees and then they, you know, they obviously saved people from burning buildings and they were just the coolest dudes ever. And I was, you know, four years old watching this thing and and I remember just being greatly impacted by how rad it was for these guys to be going out and saving other people's lives and so even at an early age I'm like that's that's pretty cool that one human being can can put themselves in danger and go help someone else I thought that that was that was remarkable and somehow it really intuitively hit me as a as a kid and um, I got a because of that Fascination with that show, my parents gave me this little Fisher Price plastic uh, medical kit with like a little plastic stethoscope uh, and a thermometer and a uh, you know blood pressure cuff and like all the, and they were all cheap plastic made in China shit, and I'd go around <laughs> with this thermometer and 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 go around to all my family members and say roll over it's time for your temperature so I would like. I would like, I was engaged. I was already (laughs) a professional at the age of four. So um, then uh, I got a little, as you may have mentioned, Elliot, I got a little sidetracked by, by a lot of stuff, by music and by partying and, you know, by, all psychedelics by all kinds of stuff, you know, <laughs> kind of rerouted me for a little while. The Grateful Dead were, were my demise, uh, also <laughs> my, my greatest joy. Um, but, but so, so as, a, as a result of not being focused and attentive um, and dedicated, uh, I didn't do so well academically uh, my first go. And, and it wasn't until I decided that medicine was going to be my thing Uh, and that I was I had passion for it and I wanted to be good at it and and I there was no way to do that and not not completely dedicate yourself so that's when I went to University of Colorado and and then uh, yeah took my wilderness EMT course which then led to me meeting a climbing partner that introduced me to Eric right so everything sort of auspiciously started to happen once I changed from you know being a you know just sort of a See of my pants, just sort of, you know, free flowing through life. And then, which is fine. Great. I'm glad it happened. I'm glad it was a big, solid chapter of my life. Uh, but then I found something that I was in love with, which was medicine. And then, you know, obviously mountains. And, uh, and then I was able to marry those things uh, and go to PA school. Uh, and, and then, carve out a career that was based in mountains and medicine
1: yeah <clears throat>
2: and something that i want
1: our fans to be clear on is that as how extreme i don't know if i don't know if extreme is the right word i think it is in some in some situations how extreme you took your travels and your your medicine on on rogan you went through your time in iraq which blew me away man the situation that you were in and how you were able to use your medicine and which is already that that work is already highly stressful. And then as you said on the, the, that podcast, you were doing it with RPGs exploding around you. You had to deal with some incredible situations with the people, the locals there. Yeah. And so what I wanna ask you is, I guess we can start with which was the highest stress situation where you, that you put yourself in medically?
2: um undoubtedly that there's there's no situation that will ever ever compete with that and that's why i have such deep and profound respect for for combat medics specifically um uh the professionals that that work in combat theaters and um administer uh medicine to their colleagues trauma medicine oftentimes they're they're forced to um take what would be a normal trauma setting in an emergency department setting which like you said Bob is stressful enough and then add on to it this several other layers. Uh, and and so there's there undoubtedly that will always be you know the you know the <laughs> the most chaotic uh environment that, that I've ever worked in. But I mean I've, I've somehow I, I i always find myself in these shit shows you know and 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 it's 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 because I want to. I mean, undoubtedly, I, I look for ways to sort of um, mutter up a perfectly good scenario um, when it comes to uh, you know being able to, you have a certain set of skills. We all have a certain set of skills, and it's just a matter of um, being in the environment where you can really apply those skills to the best of your ability. And so if, if I'm half decent at handling trauma scenarios uh, in austere environments, then, then I'm not doing myself any favors by going and, and working in a, you know, a, uh, a primary care clinic somewhere in Denver. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's just not what I'm wired for. I'm wired for something that's a little bit more complex. And I've put a lot of my, my life and effort and learning and um, knowledge base into trying to be a better version uh, of me. When I'm in those scenarios, I'm writing my second book right now um, based on this concept called VUCA. It's an acronym uh, called VUCA that some of you probably heard of before. So it stands for Volatile, Uncertain, Complex, and Ambiguous. And it was a uh, an acronym that was coined by the American War College um, back in the mid-80s. Uh, and it was uh, an attempt to, um, as a form of curriculum, to get the... The graduates to, of their programs ready to be able to handle these stressful situations, and and so that obviously resonated with me because it's the whole thing, the whole body of work, is how do you be better when things are not as you planned them, when things are stressful and they're chaotic and they're complex, which is life, right? I mean, it's it's life. It's it's. It's how we all operate professionally and personally. So I learned a lot from taking a dive into that. And I'm actually on my, the final chapter of that book. And that whole last chapter is the academic chapter. And so I've, I've been sort of immersed in this, uh, in, the, in this sort of didactic version of, uh, of chaos and complexity and, and, and how to be better uh, when things are, are, are spinning a little bit sideways. Um, so yeah, Iraq was will, was and always will be the sort of you know, quintessential junk show. Um, but I'm so glad that I experienced it, and I'm still very closely connected to the guys I was there with, like so many other men and women who've served in the military. You know, you have these experiences with people and, and you're forever, forever connected to them, you know, because you went through something that was very dense and complicated and, and stressful.
1: What are some of the other locations that
2: you've dealt with? Well, uh, remarkably, uh, I guess the, another big one was uh, in Nepal after the earthquake. Um, and uh, that one was, I'd say, probably two weeks after the massive earthquake in 15, 2015. I think that's one that was. Uh, it killed 10,000 people. and. Um, I went over with a group, the same, same group that I worked with in Iraq, actually. Um, and we went over as a super light mobile team. We actually moved villages, you know, just to try and continue to find the volume of patients that needed, that needed our help. Um, but we, uh, you know, we, we were there probably two weeks after the first earthquake and then, and then there was all these aftershocks and I tell you, it was it was obviously a fair bit of, you know, weak old trauma, but the real thing, and this was just such a, such a cross section of life was, uh, the real thing that we encountered was anxiety, was depression, was sadness, was post-traumatic stress. These families had lost, and we were in rural, I'm talking way rural Nepal. Like it took a 45 minute helicopter ride and then continuing to bump around the hillside, trying to find these communities, you know? uh they didn't have anything to begin with. And then and then they lost that. And so they lost family members. It was a lot of a lot of death and and sorrow and grief. And and uh so it became a lot of that. It became a lot of of grief counseling and and uh you know I'm a DR trauma guy. I love the idea of being um reliable and helpful to people. Um but you know I never would have you know, you don't go to, to, I don't think I went to PA school and learn how to be a grief counselor, but I learned how to be a human. And really that's what it comes down to is, is you're a human, you learn how to, to touch people, to reach them. Even if you don't speak their language, they just want to know like they're cared for and they, they're loved. And, and there's people that, that, that are, you know, concerned about their welfare. Um, So that was a, that was a very heady and very fulfilling uh, experience um, being over there with them. And then and then, of course, there was uh, uh, I did search and rescue um, on a helicopter uh, in the Himalayas uh, for a whole season. And uh, I, I, I mean, I, there there is a three hour conversation about that right there and how dense that was and how crazy it was flying around in a, a B-3 helicopter, you know, in, in the middle of the Himalayas trying to pluck dead and dying people off the sides of wow. these big mountains. Would you wait for
1: a call, like a distress call? Someone is stranded on the mountains and you, you would go and save them. And I'm already, I'm very curious about this with Everest and with the overpopulated trails that, that I know they're dealing with. We talked about this with Eric, and it seems that a lot of these people now who are climbing Mount Everest are inexperienced. They just have the money. Mm-hmm. We, and that's they're sort of just like ticking this off of their list because they have the funds to do it without the appreciation for Mountaineering for the mountain for the country of Nepal so when you were there did you notice that a lot of the people you were saving were some of these people who were going in with a lack of experience yep
2: hundred yeah. percent that was uh, there was no question but I've seen that on mountains all over the world you know I worked search and rescue on Denali uh, in Alaska for two seasons in between guiding up there and we would always just see these yahoos that would uh, come up there with with uh, you know with brand new shiny gear or the other way around really crappy gear, you know, <laughs> and, and, uh, and just didn't have the, they didn't do the apprenticeship. You know, they didn't do the, uh, they didn't, they didn't spend the, the, uh, the hours, the, the years prepping their, their brains and their bodies. So that when things kind of flew off the tracks near the, near the summit, which it almost always does, that they've got this primal reflexive response to chaos. Because um, they've done it so many times. It's cold. It's windy. My head hurts. I can't think. I've got cerebral edema. My, I've got pulmonary edema. Things are going south. Somebody's dying over there. But I'm still trying to keep everything together. And what do you have to rely on? It's this like reptilian primal thing. that Because you've done it hundreds and hundreds of times. How to click your repel your device onto your rope. You don't even have to look at it in Eric's case, especially, you you don't even have to look at it. You just like (laughs) fire it in there because you know, and then you move and you just, you just boom. Um, And people are skipping over that um, because, you know, money talks. So that's, that's
1: well, what are some of the situations that you you actually were in when you say people in the Himalayas or wherever in Denali?
2: Yeah. Well, let's use Everest in that season in particular. Um, You know, uh, there was, there was a handful of people, uh, that probably hadn't spent enough time understanding how their bodies responded at out, at those extreme elevations, because altitude plays a number on your on your body and your brain, um, and it and it uh, it really does affect everything, um, and and it and it, um, it it doesn't exclude anybody; it affects everybody in some fashion. And so, um, you know, that season. We probably pulled off at least a half dozen people um, that just got altitude sick and kept going. Okay, everybody gets altitude sick. Everybody gets affected by it. uh, All true. But if you've got the moxie, you've got the experience and the bandwidth that you've put in for years, you know personally, you don't have to have somebody tell you, you know, this is not my day. It's time to turn around. I can come back. Because if I keep going, I'm going to put other lives in jeopardy. That's the way I think. I've turned myself around before, primarily because I figured if I kept going for whatever reason, whether it was weather or whether it was my own body, not just performing that day, that if I kept going, that I would ultimately jeopardize someone else. And That to me was like, that was an absolute no-no. Whether it was on a big rock or a mountain or whatever. But the people who have not done that, Uh, They get complacent. They haven't spent the time. They don't know what their body's going to do. And then they have an issue and they, instead of choosing to be, you know, diligent and and turn around, they keep going, probably with the hope that someone is going to come get them and pluck them off because that's how, that's how a lot of mindsets work these days Um, because they realize that, you know, money can, money can get you there and it can get you out. So there, there's this mindset that's been created uh, for whatever reason it is what it is. And so that, that's a, that's a, it's just how it goes. It's what it is. Yeah. So would you say that travel
0: is just part of your job, not necessarily what leads it?
2: Travel is something that um, I'm sure as, as you three know, and, and every, all your listeners, um, there is, uh, there is something that happens the first time when you're young specifically when you hit the road and you get your passport stamped and you step off that airplane in this foreign place, that's nothing like Harrisburg or or Philly or evergreen, right? There's nothing. So the thing that happens to you is this metamorphosis that I think will, it, it, you're never the same after that. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you guys have heard that quote that travels the one thing you buy that makes you richer. It's the only thing you buy that makes you richer. Right? So it's like, that thing happened to me fairly early even though my family didn't travel right my parents never went anywhere um and now they live in mexico but uh, (laughs) they never went anywhere when i was growing i never went anywhere um so it was when i was you know 19 years old i started to sort of spread my wings a little bit and get out there and then it became something that i cannot not do uh you know i i get really wonky if i don't step away from the United States at least a couple to three times a year um, and step away from comfort and step away from my big fat king bed and my hot tub and all these things that I really enjoy and I appreciate my wife's wonderful southern cooking like I love all those things but in order to truly appreciate them I have to not have them for a while and I have to taste other things I have to experience other things uh, and then when I come back Um, to them I I cherish them even more for a few months and then it's time to go do it again so um, travel is is obviously um, been uh, something that uh, is in my blood but then it becomes uh, yeah it just becomes the the avenue the medium for me to be able to go to these places and then have these experiences whether it's in the mountains or it's medically do you wait to see
1: if there are situations that you know with the the wildfires in Australia, mm-hmm. is that something like you see these things happening in the news and think you know what? Maybe I should go there and check it out and see what I can do.
2: Well, I you know that that particular instance, no. Um, but other natural disasters, you bet. Um, you know that one, no, because simply because it was like uh, you know I'm not a firefighter, and you know Australia is a very you know it's a very developed country. Yeah, um, and the places that I find myself. Um, whether it's Nepal or Iraq and the most recent experiences uh, and examples we used, um, they they don't have a lot of Western trained uh, physicians and PAs and infrastructure there. So for me to go there, I think is a more impactful than if I were to go other places, but yeah, like when the earthquake happened in Nepal that morning, I woke up and uh, my phone was dinging everywhere. Everybody's like, did you, you know, and I, I, once I looked into it, there was no question, no question in my mind, I would be on a plane for the next handful of days. Um, and, you know, so that was an example of it just triggering and happening and, and I'm, I'm there, I'm going, uh, And uh, that, that, uh, that doesn't happen very often. Um, but, you know, I'm on a, I'm on an email uh, thread with a lot of these folks that work within this um, work within this uh, NGO. And when anything happens, whether it's, so a typhoid breakout, or it's a, uh, you know, it's a some form of natural disaster or in some cases man made disaster. Um, then they usually try to mobilize a team very, very quickly um, and say, who's game, who can go. Uh, and here's what it looks like. And then, you know, two, three days later, it's either a go or a no go. Um, so, you know, if we have people listening right now who are in the medical
1: field and enjoy travel and think that this might be something they could get into, what which direction would you set them on as far as resources uh, or contacts?
2: Yeah. Well, um, I get asked that a lot, especially since the Rogan podcast and I was the, I was the keynote speaker for the national PA conference in New Orleans two years ago. And I tell you almost every day uh, I get a, uh, I get a, uh, some sort of inquiry for somebody medically or, or, or even a lot of, a lot of veterans say, Hey man, I just, I want to volunteer. I want to do something. I want to do, I want to do some of the stuff that you've done. And so how do I do that? So I answer that question a fair bit and I still don't even have a really great answer other than um, there are uh, message boards um, that are out there um, on the, on the interweb that will uh, showcase all these different NGOs Um, that you can, uh, uh, you can get connected with relative to your skill sets. Um, And it just takes a pretty quick little search, Um, you know, volunteering, NGO, international, you know, something like that would be your keyword. And you'll find message boards that will continue to do a good job, I think, of populating different NGOs, non-governmental organizations that are looking for people that have electrical engineering background or, or an anesthesiologist or a dentist or an ophthalmologist or a carpenter. Uh, and, you know, you say, Hey, I've been doing this for this long and, and I'd really just love to go volunteer. And, and of course, medical is, is probably the most sought after uh, because there's a good chunk of our planet that um, is underserved medically. And, uh, and d- depending on what medical specialty people have, Um, there's there are places to go there are groups to get affiliated with and I think the most sought-after is probably primary care family physician you know know, family practice because honestly that's the most that's the the most diverse uh, and it is the most uh, uh, sought-after I think when it comes to just providing care uh, internationally
1: when you've been traveling
0: internationally and seeing different kinds of cultures, how does that affect the way that you give
2: care? Hmm. Well, um, I can tell you this, um, Amanda. And you'll appreciate this because you're a PA. You don't have to chart. Uh, oh my god! <laughs> you don't have to oh chart my. it. It's like, oh my gosh, what a joy to just actually like provide medical care and then not have to sit in front of a stinking computer and be like. <laughs> <laughs> We're sort of like, half the shift, you know, documenting and CYA the whole time. Um, so it's it's That's part is rough. So, but, you know, here we are back Western medicine. You got to document every single thing. You got to document it if you sneeze during a shift, right? So um, that hasn't changed anything. But uh, I tell you what it has done for me medically is it uh, – asks me to rely on my instincts a lot more rather than just some uh, box check diagnostic study. It's easy when people come in the emergency department or anywhere um, in a medical setting and you say, you know, I've got, I've got chest pain and I, uh, you know, then uh, maybe I've had some vomiting and then immediately everybody's like, oh, you got to order this, 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 and this. Well, no, you don't. I mean, because you know what it you know what it's not, but because of the litigious society that we live in, you have to order five different studies and drive up medical care costs for every single all of us um, as a result of these um, just you know these lawyers that will come after you if you don't make sure. How did you how dare you you miss that point zero 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 one chance that that was going to happen? So that changed uh, a lot of it, and, and understanding that your knowledge is going to provide you. Uh, most of what you need, not to not to discount, uh, you know, not to discount um, diagnostics, but I think it's important to, to use your instincts and your knowledge uh, as best you can.
0: And Certainly, when you're in more of the emergent
1: situations and not in a tertiary care center, an academic medical center,
2: you're not going to order all the battery of tests that aren't required. You're right. getting what needs to be done now. So the person doesn't die.
1: Yeah. It seems like it seems to be a much more practical approach to medicine when you're, in these, when these, when you're in these foreign countries, yeah. Yeah, which they need, right? I mean, I'm sure they don't care about their charting either.
2: There's no peer to peer for the care that you're going to give. The insurance company's not going to call you, you know, nope. as you're doing that procedure <laughs> on the mountain saying, nope. I, I don't know, the insurance company won't approve that. No, or you're trying to, you know, in the middle of a combat zone, guys got a, you know, marginal airway and you're trying to establish an airway with, you know, minimal induction medicines and, you know, gunshots going off. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of charting going on right there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So a question I have for you in your travels, what advice would you be able to provide? Travelers, mountaineers, mountaineers, mountaineering yeah, experts. All mountaineers, yeah. yeah the, well, these people that are putting themselves in these situations, what, ex- what tips would you give these people to make sure that they don't have to meet you?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: You're talking about like Western, Western travelers traveling internationally? You know,
1: I guess so. I guess so. Um, I guess this more falls in line with your experience doing mountain rescue. Mm-hmm. Have these people going up these mountains and it's becoming more and more popular for people with little to no experience who just have the money
2: yeah to go I, on these excursions I, I think that it's a you know it's a it's a it's a pretty solid conversation because I never want to deter someone from not they've got money it's not their fault good for them they've got money go out and travel good I'd rather you do that than than you know blow it on a on a Lamborghini right that's cool good for you but don't just assume that, you know, you've got the, the stones to be able to go climb Everest just because you, um, you know, climbed uh, reindeer one time, uh, you know, like go out and do your apprenticeship. Go out and learn and, and sweat and get your butt handed to you over and over and over again. Uh, and 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 then. I think you're, you're better prepared to, to handle, you know, all the things that are going to come at you. I mean, I've been climbing for, um, you know, probably going on, yeah, 30 years now. And, uh, and, you know, I've, I've seen a lot, but I haven't seen everything. I've experienced a bunch of stuff, but I haven't, I haven't experienced much at all. You know, it's like that parabola of, as you, you know, as you, as you, as you learn, it's like the, the valleys and the, the, the peaks of, Of being young and thinking you know everything and then all of a sudden you start realizing I don't know much at all and then um and then you come back up on the other side realizing that the more you know the less you know and the more you want to know And so it's this sort of parabola and that's the way mountaineering is too you know the more experiences I've had the more knowledge that I've acquired um the more I realize that I I really don't know very much and and that, that that's the curious part about. Um, getting out there and having adventures and, and doing hard things is it's this, it's just continues to be this venue of learning um for me. But for back to the people who um you know who who don't who honestly uh how to avoid getting in trouble is um is put in the hours, put in the time, and then surround yourself with people that you trust. There's a lot of sub rate outfitters that are out there uh, that put people in crappy situations. And I've seen it on Everest and other mountains um, where it's just a a marginal outfitter with very little experience they are charging less money. So maybe some people gravitate towards them and then they throw their, they huck their clients up against the wall and then some of them stick and some of them don't. And I think that, that the, that is an issue. Uh, And so put in the experience, put in the time and vet the the people that you're going to rope up with metaphorically.
1: Yeah. Everest seems to be the biggest Concern for for people that do this that don't do enough of their research and I know do you have a, a situation or a story to tell about how you had to save somebody from from Mount Everest?
2: Oh, uh, I mean, I've got dozens. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I've got a, I've got a lot that uh, you know I'll, I can pick any one of a dozen of them. Um, you know, give you one for example uh, that was all the Sherpas and all the helicopter pilots. Uh, I was just merely a spectator, but I just think it's so remarkable. Um, The West shoulder of Everest is really big and it's a pretty sought after line on Everest. Almost everybody goes up the Lhotse face and goes around in the Southeast Ridge or up the North side uh, from Tibet. Um, And in this case, uh, well, in the West shoulders, I mean, I've had a couple of my very close friends uh, try it and you only barely get up to the shoulder. You know, it's like, it's super hard. Um, and it changes dramatically every year these two uh, Czechoslovakian dudes um, were going up even more direct line up uh, up Everest and they got in trouble and they threw out a rescue call and I know that face I've been up at camp Two a bunch and I know that whole face where they were and it's massive it's expansive and they were they were literally like we're we're just up here on the face. Like, we need a little bit more than that. And they were they radioed down to, down to base camp, and the base camp guys like they're somewhere up there. <laughs> and so I started talking to my the the Sherpa team that I was working with, and there was three of them who we were just going to go up from Camp Two and just go up this face and try and find them. And it was literally needle in a haystack. I mean, I, there was I thought to my, I was looking at the map, you know, down at my command center, and i said there's no way. Twelve hours later, they found them. And then secured them and then rappelled down with them all the way down to camp two. And then the helicopter pilot and I went in and plucked them off and they were fine. They had some minor injuries from some slough and avalanches, but I just find that just amazing uh, how, how, you know, that Sherpa team of these guys really remarkable human beings um, just somehow you know, you can imagine it's like literally probably a mile wide, you know, and, and they somehow found these guys. Um, yeah. Them. Wow. Yeah. Really remarkable. Yeah.
0: Lucky for those two Czechoslovakians. Dudes.
2: <laughs> yeah. And so we brought them down and they lived and uh, and then they went back. Uh, and uh, this was what that was three or four years ago. And then last year, one of them died on Everest. Actually, wow. one of the Czechs died last year. Yeah. One of those two guys. What's
1: what's the most common cause of death uh, for people who are hiking Mount Everest?
2: Oh, I'd say the most common, uh, if you look at all the numbers, the most common is probably exposure and altitude related illness. Um, People get, you know, it's, it's a domino effect. They get, they get sick. uh, They, you know, they get uh, some form of AMS and then uh, which typically evolves into cerebral edema and they get really sick and then they can't, move. And then they ultimately will probably die from exposure. Um, but it's, it's usually preceded by, uh, by, uh, you know, some form of altitude.
1: Is there a way to treat altitude sickness while someone's on the mountain other than just bringing them down?
2: Yeah. That the number one thing is to bring people down. Um, and that's, you know, usually if you bring to somebody down 3000 feet, they, they improve remarkably. Um, and that's what we, we would find is, you know, we put somebody in a helicopter that's basically almost dead. And then you get them back down from, you know, 23,000 feet down to even 17,000 feet. And all of a sudden they're opening their eyes and then you get them down to 10,000 feet. And they're like, what's up? Let's play cards. You know, and like it was amazing. Um, uh, but yeah, there's other ways to intervene and there's uh, pharmacological ways to intervene. Um, and then there's obviously mechanical ways to intervene with a hyperbaric chamber where you put them in and pump it up and you decrease the, um, you, you, uh, increase the pressure, uh, which increases more oxygen availability, um, inside these things called gamoff bags. But then, yeah, there's medicines that we give, um, whether it's oral, oral tablets, um, to be able to, um, have a diuretic type effect uh, in the body, um, or, uh, uh, or um, a steroid that we give typically um, from an injection perspective, and it shrinks the swelling in the brain.
1: So staying on theme with Everest and kind of staying into Nepal, I know Nepal is a country that you're incredibly passionate about, and you were just there recently. Can you explain yeah, your project that you have going on right now with Nepal?
2: Yeah, so I was supposed to go with Eric uh, to do a mountain called Amadablam, which is a 22,000-foot peak uh, this fall. And I, you know, about three months out, just, I couldn't, there's there came a situation where I just couldn't go. And so I was sick about it. Um, but I knew I needed to go to Nepal anyway. I've always, you know, felt a, a strong affinity for Nepal. And I realized, um, the day that I told Eric, I can't go that this was going to be my chance to be able to take my family. Um, and so I'm on the board for an organization called the Himalayan Stove project. And what the Himalayan Stove Project was started by a friend of mine, and, and all of us that go to Nepal and Tibet specifically, you go into these tea, ho- tea houses and huts and homes, and there are uh, these open-air fires. Everybody cooks over these open-air fires, and it, um, it it's not ventilated at all. So all the particulates from the smoke fill up these rooms, and you know you couldn't see five feet in front of you. Um, typically, um, on really cold, you know, cold days when they just stoke the fire and they're cooking tea and cooking the rice the whole time, and they're trying to warm the place up. And so, my friend George realized that was a problem, and he said, "There's got to be a solution." And so, he figured out how to get these um, $150 unit um, stove units manufactured with a little ventilation system um, made of uh, sheet metal, and it just comes right out of the the home, and it and it uh, pipes the smoke out and still creates heat, and is, as well as Cooks more efficiently, and so that decreases the incidence of COPD, which is a um, lung disease, uh, and cataracts and emphysema, and it also decreases the amount of fuel by seventy-five percent that's necessary. So wood is a very finite resource, as well as yak dung and cow dung that they burn, and so it burns seventy-five percent more efficiently. So um, he created this this uh, organization. I stood on the board, and I got my wife and my son. Um, um, in to embrace this idea of going over to a really small little rural village uh, that we identified over in way way Western Nepal and I got my son to get involved and he raised over twelve thousand dollars to be able to pay for a bunch of stoves um, for for not just our project but for other projects as well and then uh, I flew my family and I over there and and we went spent days trying to get to this little village and finally got there. And then we received these, these stoves and then, and then installed them throughout the whole village um, 300 stoves uh, over there. And um, it was a, it was a joy to watch. My wife had never been in Nepal. She's been a bunch of different places with me all that she'd been to Bhutan and, and to Asia, but she'd never been to Nepal before. And of course my son never had, he's 14. And so I feel like that's as I'm aging as a, as a adventurer and a traveler, you know, i it, it's it's <clears throat> the onus is on me now to to share it to take him and to show him what it means to travel, have adventures, but try to to pivot them so that they're not just about you. It's not super gratuitous. Yeah, you need some of those. We all need to just go travel and play. I like to do that a lot, but I also like to go create impact when I travel um, and try to do something positive, whether it's a service project or whether it's you know, doing something in some fashion that impacts positively this community that I'm spending time in, um, even as little as, you know, finding someone to, to to take out to dinner or to visit the local school wherever I am and make a small donation or uh, figure out how to connect a uh, another NGO with this school that I just found or this hospital or a little clinic and how to how to. Connect dots for them. If that's all I do is just say, hey, you need to talk to this person and then let me connect you here because they have resources, they have materials, they have supplies, I have books, they have academics, whatever. I've done that a bunch. Even if it's that, that creates positive impact. And I wanted my son to see that. And he did. He felt it. He got it. Uh, and undoubtedly, it's you know, sort of changed his trajectory in his life for sure. Yeah. Travel at a young age will do that. Mm-hmm especially when you travel to places where there's not a lot of white people, you know, like, uh, you know, like they had never seen my boys, my height, he's almost six foot. Um, and he's got long blonde hair and, you know, like chest length, long blonde hair. And and so, you know, they're like, (laughs) they were drawn to him like a moth to a fire. And, um, and he really, he got it he really he was he was humbled by the whole experience you know this he was tearful a lot um and yeah there's no doubt like that truly impacted. him i mean he's been going to mexico since he was three we have a little house down in baja and he's been going there and you know so he knows travel he knows these places but that that recalibrated him forever forever
1: now is he in the medical field or getting going to get into
2: the medical field too no, he doesn't like mm. that stuff. No, okay. yeah, uh, I get it. I, I
1: have a queasy stomach. I understand yeah. it completely. Agree
2: uh. at all. Um, yeah, he's, that's not his field. He's he knows what he wants to get into, but it's not medicine.
0: Yeah. So, can we talk about your relationship with Eric?
2: Yeah. How did you guys meet? You said it well, was yeah. First, three I got a climber. Did you ask him what his relationship with me? Because I have to give him his <laughs> <the> answer first. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I got to know what I'm did gonna be nice or not? Did uh, we
1: ask that? We we you, you came did, up. Yeah, I, you did come up in our conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, we
2: could. He was our, like, "Yeah, some guy
1: just took me up there. Some guy to sure. kind of well, raised yeah. over it. I
2: mean, so, I mean, Elliot, I, I know what you. How did How did we come to, to meet and, and mm-hmm. so forth? But I'll tell you. Fundamentally, we're brothers, and that's why I preface that. I mean we we have a very sibling relationship, um, so we dog each other consistently, uh, so that's why I even asked like was he which version of him was he that day? I,
0: I do have something to ask you about later, but I'll wait for it. Something that Eric told us told Amanda and I while we were visiting,
2: yeah okay, maybe you should go ahead and do that now <laughs> Before I all the questions because I need to know whether it be, I need to know whether it'd be nice or not
0: <laughs> well. Eric did tell us that one of the trips you were rock climbing, you were up one of these. Was it an ice wall or just a rock face? Yes. Either way, uh, Eric told us that you've been telling people that you were sleeping above him and were trying to spit in onto him, and he said no. It's absolutely the other way around, and that he spit into your mouth and you choked.
2: <laughs> and it was like skittles; it wasn't spitting it was throwing skittles,
0: skittles. Oh, yeah,
2: he was throwing like or M and M's or something like that. But no, I never said I was above him. I had been fixing ropes uh, while he was sleeping, uh, uh, so I was working uh, yeah. harder. And uh, while he was laying in his sleeping bag, me and Hans flooring were up higher fixing ropes, and we came down and. And we lay down on the ledge below them because we gave them the good
0: ledge.
2: We gave them the bigger ledge. And then Hans and I were on this little slopey ledge where I had to sleep sitting up. And somehow he's twisted that story into, yeah, he was throwing M&Ms in my mouth because I had racked out the phones. Um, but Eric's a historical revisionist. Um, ah. he, uh, he, he, likes to, he likes to retell stories in a different way, but aren't we all? But, um, we love each other and we've had uh, just amazing experiences together and we're already I got a calling right after I hang up with you here is uh because we've got something in the hopper for here in the next few months that we're trying to, to plan we're just trying to use as much time as we can while we still have a little bit of cartilage left and and uh, get out and do hard stuff but um we met through remember I was telling you that we I went to the, that wilderness CMT course and there was a guy in that class named Sam and I took Sam and I went climbing up in the San Juans near Telluride and we had a bit of an epic and and it was really quite scary actually and, and um I kept things you know pretty calm and I think he was impressed by you know that I didn't freak out when things were really, really not What happened? You know, it wasn't gonna end well. We just got off route and we were we were on a pretty steep rock face and um and uh we got off route and we had to improvise our rappel anchors and they were not good. We had to row shambo to see who was Going to go off the first one. We um, mm. didn't think it was going to end well. You know what I'm saying? So it was one of those days we ended up making it back, obviously. And so he's like, man, you got to meet this blind guy. And so that was a long time ago. And so that's how Eric and I met. Uh, and we started climbing that meeting and just, you know, we became bros really, really quickly. And um, that was 25 years ago, uh, 26 years ago, I guess now. So um,
0: whose idea was it to go up Everest?
2: Uh, it wasn't mine, all right, um, because I uh, never it really never was that appealing to me. Um, I mean, I guess the Himalayas were appealing, but Everest was not. So it was it was it was a collaboration between him and uh, our what would soon be our, our expedition leader for that trip, a guy who would already who'd been up Everest the year before. His name's Pasquale PV. Mm-hmm and pv uh, and him met at or at the or show and uh just started talking about it and then it became it became the conversation where they were like well maybe but you know the team the team would have to be solid and eric's like well you know i got two guys that i won't do it without them and that was chris Morris and myself who'd been with eric from the beginning uh and then there was a handful of guys who pv said you know i won't do it without these guys and and then, so we all climbed together for you know for quite a while in anticipation of heading out there and and, and doing this together. Um, and that was yeah, it was a long time ago. And and then since then, you know, Eric and I knew that right then uh, after we got back from Everest that we didn't want to let that be the biggest thing ever. Um, we wanted to keep doing hard stuff and and trying hard things. And so we yeah, I mean we we did adventure racing for like three years after that and did a bunch of really hard adventure races um you know in domestically in the us as well as uh we did we did a big one in, in greenland and then we did a really big one in morocco uh that was hard and it was on tv it was actually on abc um what do you mean by what do you mean by adventure races and yeah but just explain the moroccan one so adventure adventure racing is a multi-discipline race um and it can be different disciplines um, and generally it's in the mountains um but there was an old race called the eco challenge back in the day um and it was you know different places fiji and and new zealand and places you know all over the world that were really hard places to navigate and then there would be you know, a race where you have to climb and then you'd repel and then you'd paddle and then you'd ride a mountain bike and you'd orienteer and navigate and run and run and run and you wouldn't sleep. And if you slept, basically you got passed and you lose. So it was this sleep deprivation is always a big part of these multi-day discipline, like expedition-like um, adventure races. And and so for some stupid idea, we thought that was a good thing to do. For like three years, we did it. And uh, I'm still convinced that it shortened my my climbing career for sure because it was hard I mean, it was hard stuff man definitely long long days which turned into long nights the one we did in california called primal quest it was a 10-day race and we slept 18 hours in those 10 days total cumulative whoa and you know the winners of the race finished in five days we finished the night of the ninth, like ninth day so into the 10th day and, wow. Um, wow. How did they finish it that fast? It was mean, crushing, like hallucinating. We we started the first morning, paddled up Lake Tahoe, back down across Lake Tahoe, ran ran, navigated mountain bike mountain bike through the afternoon into the evening, didn't sleep the whole that whole night, into the next day, into the next night and still hadn't slept. And then we got into the second night and full hallucinations. <clears throat> Like I was seeing snakes across the trail that were roots and Eric was hearing audi- auditory hallucinations where he was hearing things from the woods and he would like he was flipping it out. And, you oh, know, I wow. thought a bit of psychedelics and I felt like I was tripping. I mean, that was what was happening is your brain was going into this sort of, you know, place that was sort of protecting itself. And, um, and it, was, uh, it was very, very hard. The one we did in Morocco was a made for tv race it was called expedition impossible and it was 10 10 or um 10 teams uh well no 13 teams of three and uh you know it was charging all over morocco doing the same kind of stuff um but sleep deprivation wasn't as much of an issue uh on that one because it was a staged race uh and it was pretty cool morocco is amazing uh it's the Sort of the, it's like a hybrid of Europe and Africa and the Middle East all coming together in one big explosion in Morocco and the topography there is nuts. I mean, absolutely crazy landscapes, big rivers, big mountains, um, rock faces. Uh, and, it, you know, it's culturally just a wonderful place. One of the, my favorite places I've ever been. I'd like to go back there and not <clears throat> run full speed, you know, the whole time.
0: Right. Enjoy it a little bit more. Maybe
1: get some sleep.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think the, the town's
2: called Chef Chef Juan or something like that.
1: That that Joe blue Chiffon. city. Chef Chef uh-huh. Yeah. It's beautiful.
2: I would like yeah. to go. I haven't been yeah. to Morocco, though. The adventure racing was cool, but, you know, glad we did it. But you know, it definitely chopped our cartilage in half by, by half, probably. <laughs> when all and started. how
1: would you how would you fare against teams that had, you know, for Morocco, for example, three people who all could see?
2: well that was a major tv race so it was pretty funny and it was like all these stereotypes mark burnett the guy who made survivors who made that thing okay um, because he had done the original eco challenge back in the day and sort of bringing it back and so there was all these. there was like the new york city firemen over there and the, the boston cops and <laughs> the, like former nfl football players who were all just you know big six six yucked up dudes but really all these people were really really great people actually uh, we got to know a fair bit of them but then you know, I'm running around with the blind dude um, and no one knew who Eric was at first. And then we actually got second place in the very first stage, the very first stage. We got second place just for making good decisions and, and being strong and firing through. And, and all of a sudden it was like, all these people were like, dude, I, that's, the, that's the blind dude who summited Everest. Cool. <laughs> like, oh we got to take this guy seriously. And then we ended up getting second place on the whole race overall. Wow. Who
0: wow.
2: uh, beat you? This, this uh, group of this team of young fellas uh, from California, all these young – they were these young guys who were probably 15 years younger than us, and they were a bunch of CrossFitters, and they were really smart and well-traveled. They'd all been all over the world, and they were really fit, and they beat us by 10 minutes so we oh. almost took them um but they were they were great really good guys um, uh, they were called the gypsies um they're all like san diego la guys really good <laughs> fellas but if they wouldn't have beat us I'd have been like yo you got beep up you know some 40 year olds with a blind dude you know like oh, man. <laughs> better you better win. And they, and they did. They're a good guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what does the
1: future hold for you as far as your travels and your medical career, medical career are concerned?
2: Yeah. Well, um, you know, I'm always, I'm always uh, receptive to going to places uh, to be able to work medically. It's something that I, I usually do at least one of those missions a year. Um, I'm finishing up my second book right now. Um, and then I usually lead two expeditions per year these days. I uh, got one in the books, um, taking a bunch of clients to Bolivia in August, 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 I think, uh, and we'll climb uh, three different peaks down in Bolivia over the course of three weeks. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I mean, it, all of it, I'll continue to do it as, as long as my wife lets me, um, I had to say that cause she just walked by <laughs> uh, and, and, and my, uh, and my body lets me. I'll continue to do these things and and try to to uh, to have fun and and but to create positive impact along the way and um, you know every year is is cool because you know on New Year's Eve I'm I'm like what does this year have in store you know and I, I don't know and I like that I like not knowing and then getting invited to do things. Um, to be able to, to uh, have these really cool, unique experiences. And that's one thing I would, I would say is, um, you know, I've, I've set up a scenario with my myself medically as well as professionally in the mountains and so forth and um, being a guide where I, I, I get myself invited to do a lot of stuff. And it's only because of my skill set and my experiences. And that's a pretty cool place to be uh, is to create a CV that allows you to um, be receptive when people are like, "Hey, we got this thing going. Would you get all these things I've ever done? I just get invited to go." And that's one thing I would reinforce to people is is to continue to expound, uh, you know, what you what your skill sets are. Um, learn new things, take chances, and and on on uh, events and activities to be able to then have that in your quiver, and then ultimately if you do it enough you get provided these these platforms to be able to get invited uh to go do these kind of things um i'm not extraordinary in any way man i'm i'm not a very good pa to be honest with you i'm very very average (laughs) I've, i've been around a lot of pas that are just absolutely brilliant and docs are absolutely brilliant nurses are brilliant paramedics brilliant all of them guides as far as mountain guides there's guys who are just really, truly wonderful. I am average to say the least in everything that I do, but I continue to find opportunities to align myself with people and get invited to go do things. So I guess my point is you don't have to be the best at everything. You have to be good and be passionate, and compassionate, and then be able to play well with others. And then turns out you get to go get invited to go do cool shit.
1: <laughs> Sound advice. Very sound yeah. advice. What's the ultimate goal of your Bolivia trip? Is it to bring people just for a hiking experience? Is it for, you know, medical emergency? Yeah, no,
2: was, I mean, I will find a way to do a, a, a medical mission built into there somewhere. There'll be a whole extra day that's that's centered around that for sure. Um, Cause I, I can't not do that. Um, but this, otherwise it will just be, it'll be clients. And that's when my clients come with me to do a trip, I've got a crew that usually just is almost always with me. Uh, they, they're like, I want to go here. And they will be like, sweet, let's go. Or, or somebody will say, let's go here. But it'll it'll be, it'll have a component, but primarily it's like, let's go climb these three peaks and, uh, you know, ramping up, you know, a trekking peak and then pretty decent, hard two-day trip and then, or a two-day climb, and then there'll be a, a really hard, glaciated, steep um, three-day climb at the end. So it'll sort of ramp up in difficulty and commitment.
1: Um, and what's the experience level of the peop- of your clients?
2: Well, I mean, the ones that come with me now are experienced because they've been coming with me for a while. I mean, all of them have you know, started going up Kilimanjaro with me back in the day. Or, um, and then you know, many of them have, have uh, climbed some, some smaller peaks in Peru with me. And, and, uh, and then just uh, last year, 2018, uh, climbed a 20,000-foot peak in Nepal um, with me. Uh, there on a glacier, so you know, continuing to sort of build their resumes out as well. Yeah.
0: Are you working with Eric on doing some of the No Barriers expeditions? I know you work with him on the podcast end, but right. do you go on those treks?
2: Well, you know, we started this program for injured vets called No Barriers Warriors, mm-hmm. and we're actually what I got to talk to him today about is um, we're we're the two of us are um, trying to figure out how to put. Take the podcast to, to real life and do adventures. We went to LA. We were talked into going to LA like three years ago and make a pitch for this No Barriers series, adventure series, where Eric and I take a a, uh, a individual that's had their butt kicked at some point, whether physical or emotional, and then take them on this adventure, as transformational experience. And we went to LA and went through all, jumped through all the hoops, and then nothing came of that. Um, so what? That's what we're trying to do now, uh, and do a web based series for ourselves. Um, that we're just going to run ourselves and go have fun and get to pick out who we want to go have this trip with and go climbing and paddling and and you know mountain biking and do the hard these hard trips and then be able to distill out the message from it. And one of those demographics that we would for sure work with are the veterans that we've that we've worked with in the past um, uh, with uh, our No Bearers Warriors program. Uh, and yeah, I I still guide uh usually every couple years i'll try and volunteer and guide an expedition um for the veterans um we'll, we'll go climb a big mountain and then have a curriculum based experience uh, where we debrief and and sort of walk through the, the opportunities that we had to learn and and so eric i usually try and drag eric along on, on one of those <laughs> so he's been on a bunch of those with me
1: do you know who jose martinez is have you heard of him uh
2: is he a veteran
1: Veteran, he's a triple amputee. Yeah, he,
2: I've heard of this guy. I don't know if we've had him involved in our summit yet, but I, I have heard of him.
1: He just seems like someone who would be... So he served with one of my best friends. Um, I don't remember if it was in Iraq or in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. but hit an, I, hit an IED and lost three of his limbs. Mm-hmm. And he's just since has had this incredibly positive outlook on life. He, yeah. He's a surfer. You know, he has one limb. He's a surfer. He does goes on all these incredible expeditions. And I know that just seems like a sort of perfect fit. So if you didn't know of him, I was going to just throw his name out there, someone who you might be interested in meeting. Um, his Instagram, for anybody listening, is one guru, G-U-R-U, one. And uh, just, just watching him, he's incredibly inspirational, this guy who was hit with this tragic incident and is somehow... Overcoming it, and he, he's kind of taken upon himself to be a speaker, a motivational speaker for other people. He's Specifically. the kind
2: of guy. He's the kind of guy that we'd like to have on these experiences. You know, more more than anything, like he would be probably be a, a positive impact for uh, for our warriors program uh, attendees um, participants. Yeah,
1: yeah Check um, his Instagram out. It's one guru one. Um, very cool guy. know. Right yeah. All right,
0: Jeff. Before before we let you go, we do want to ask you if you could share some of your uh, websites or a way to get in contact with you and some of the other projects you're working on that people might be able to find.
2: Yeah, so I, um, I really am just a Instagram guy, I guess. Um, I like to post previous pictures and, and then the, the current stuff that, that I'm doing and the people I'm doing them with. So that's pretty easy. It's Jeff underscore B, uh, bravo B, Jeff underscore B underscore Evans and that's that's twitter and instagram and my website actually um, jeffbevans.com. that's where uh, that's where it all sort of gets depoted um there and i don't i don't do a very good job at it but um, i try <laughs> <laughs> you're too busy yeah, that was <laughs> yeah. life yeah
1: well well thank you so much for coming on the show today taking the time to talk to us we really appreciate it we learned a ton and uh
2: dude i'm sitting in my sweats on a sunday morning hanging out with y'all to chat. <laughs> oh, that's how we do it that's how yeah, that's we do, how so we do so it so am i yeah <laughs> that's how we run this podcast a pretty good deal so it was a pleasure hanging out with y'all and chatting with you and thanks for doing what you do and, and um and spending time with us.
0: yeah tell eric we say hi will do yeah all right thanks, thanks Jeff. a lot
2: all right thanks
0: y'all Wow. Jeff is definitely an amazing individual with a lot of insight into how the world works and has met some really interesting people. Yeah,
1: that was, that was such an incredible conversation. Uh, he has a ton of knowledge. I mean, what I really hope is that the people listening to this can take what they, what they've just heard on this podcast and can somehow fit it to their own lives and their own uh, ambition, whether it is traveling, whether it is through, you know, the medical field, um, but you something that we could take away from this conversation with him and sort of as jeff said towards the end of the podcast was that he's not the best uh PA he's not the best uh mountain climber but he allowed his ambition to kind of take the lead and it led him on this incredible path where he's now sharing some of these stories with with podcasts and TV shows and and finally uh, us it was and, it was such a great time talking to him
0: and it was also really nice to hear about his his relationship with eric after yeah. hearing about Eric and right. his experiences. Right. Um, so now for the ever important trivia question. By how many minutes did Jeff and his team lose the Expedition Impossible race in Morocco? If you know the answer, email us at travelersblueprint at gmail.com or send us a direct message.
1: This is a good question. I like this one. I'm glad I thought of it.
0: Yes, you did. You should be very <laughs> proud of
1: yourself. Um, I am. I am.
0: Don't forget to give us some ratings on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Follow us on any of the social media pages that we have. And just reach out to us if you have any general travel questions. We appreciate your time and we appreciate your loyalty. Tune in next week.